Good morning, everyone. I'm reading from Genesis chapters 39 and 40. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, 
and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Good morning. Well, you guys aren't as awake as the 9 a.m. service. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, I'll speak slower. We get um, the projections for sermons well in advance. So when I saw that I was doing Genesis 39 and 40, on the side of it, it has a title kind of to talk about what the point is. And all it said beside was providence. I thought, oh great, 
Give me a small topic on a summer or a summer uh, church service. Wayne Grudem, uh, in his systematic theology book, uh, defines providence this way. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purposes. I think we don't have a problem with God sustaining the world and causing planets to spin around the sun and causing the sun to burn and create warmth and keeping the ozone layer where it is. Um, These things are okay, but the more personal we get, the more challenging that it becomes. And the idea of God's providence and God's control starts to rub like sandpaper when we get a little bit closer to home. When I was in college, um, I was a, we'll call it a confrontational kind of guy. I liked to play the devil's advocate and be a little bit of a pain in people's side. Um, So, you know, if I could pick a fight, that was okay. I'm not saying that that was a good way to be, but that's the way that I was. God has refined me further. But this, this topic of God's providence came up between me and a friend, and he was one that believed that uh, God allows us free will to make salva- salvation choices. And I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to play the devil's advocate. You know, I don't really know where I stand at this point, but I'm going to play the Calvinist and say, no, God elects us unconditionally. That's just the way that it is. So we're having this conversation in kind of a common area. There's some couches there, and... Um, it's just the two of us, and I make a comment that makes clear what my position is, and a passerby happens to hear it and like stops dead in his tracks and turns around. Excuse me? And he sits down. Okay, well, now there's two of them. And before you know it, there's five, and then ten, and then 15 people sitting around arguing me on my position. Now, I was, I was in my glory because I was just being able to like poke and prod, and this was fun. But it became very clear that this wasn't fun for everybody because when I got up to leave, because, you know, I had a class to go to, I had somewhere to be, got up, grabbed my bag and said, this conversation was fun. A girl in the back stood up and said, you sit down. We are not finished. (laughs) Okay. So I sat down and proceeded to be there for four hours. And the reality is, is that the providence of God and how it works in our lives, there are good questions that come with thinking about that. We have to think about, well, how does salvation work? What is God's role? Just think about what is the point to evangelism if God is in control of all things? What about the origin of evil? If God created and sustains all things, then how do we deal with evil? And these are good questions that have theological depth and are ideas that we need to wrestle with. But the reality of most of our circumstances is that we engage with God's providence on a very personal level. See, these 
theories and theologies and philosophies about how free will and God interact really boil down to our personal circumstance. When we look in our family and see people struggling with ALS or MS, when we see people dying of terminal cancer, when we see children that are confined to wheelchairs or struggling with Down syndrome, when there's a severe car accident or marriage is falling apart, when children are abandoned by their parents, and when children abandon their parents. You see, we, we deal with God's providence in the muck and mire of life. It's all fine and good to have a good theology. But the reality is, is that when we talk about God and his sovereignty and his control, it comes right down to how it impacts our lives. So a little bit of light summer preaching. Maybe we should pray. God, you... you You have provided this passage in your word to reveal yourself more clearly, God. And I pray that today our minds would be clear, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would see how glorious you are and how you work in our lives through mud and muck and mire, some very difficult circumstances. God, I pray that you would use my meager preparation to declare your word and make you known more, we pray in your name. Amen. Some of my favorite movies are the ones that you never guess what the ending is. You know, I tend to like movies that are a little bit more deep. They have a point. They're making a cultural parallel or they're saying something interesting. But there's those movies that are really engaging where you're trying to figure out what What's happening? What's going on? And then at the very end, this light bulb goes on and your mind just goes, my goodness. Um, Maybe if I said, uh, for those of you who watch movies, if I said, um, I see dead people. It's one of those movies. For those of you that don't watch movies, good for you. Um, This movie is The Sixth Sense. It was... Uh, produced and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and he wrote a movie about a boy who sees dead people. And he interacts with a psychologist who is trying to figure out what's wrong, how, do, how, how does this happen. And throughout the entire movie, you're just wondering, like, how does this boy have this special ability to see dead people? And at the very end of the movie, sorry, I'm going to tell you if you haven't seen it, the psychologist is actually dead. And you just are mind blown, like, oh. And then you go back and you watch it again and you look for the director's little clues and things. You see, oh, red. The color red means something really interesting. And he doesn't talk to that person. I didn't notice that before. And oh, he's having dinner, but he's actually not eating any food. Like there's just certain little things along the way that you that point to what is happening. But the reality is, is that after you've watched this movie maybe two or three times, you see all those little things, you go, wow, what a great thing. You move on because you know the twist, you see the details, eh. 
And in a lot of ways, that's the story of Joseph. It's such a, it's such a well-known story. We know the difficulty, the challenge. Yeah, his brothers were terrible. He goes to be a slave. He rises up in Egypt. And then God says, you know, this wonderful thing where he says, as for you, to, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we go, okay, great, next, move on. Because we've heard it so often. But the reality is, is that God speaks quite clearly through the details. And sometimes it's good to go back and look at it in a detailed fashion because the things that amazed us before just might amaze us again. So let's just look at this story together. Joseph is 17 years old. If you can imagine yourself as a 17-year-old boy in an agrarian culture, maybe that's not that easy. And you're the special child. Your dad loves you. He cares for you. He's given you a special coat. He's made it perfectly clear to your brothers that you are it. You are the cream of the crop. And then, to make matters worse, God gives you a dream. Now, to us, dreams might not be that special. But to Joseph, this would have been incredible because every night while they sat around the fire, his father would have told of Abraham's dream where God promised his people a land. They would be as vast as the stars. And then the next night, Jacob would recount his dream where he saw angels ascending from heaven and to heaven and God saying to him, I will make you a great nation. You shall no longer be called Jacob. You shall be called Israel for Your descendants will be my people and I will be their God. And so when Joseph gets this dream, he thinks, I am special. God is going to do something with me. And so he goes and tells his family, guess what? I had this dream. You're going to bow down to me. I don't know what it means, but it's going to be amazing. This didn't have the effect that he had hoped. Because what it does is alienated his brothers even further. In chapter 37, it says that Jacob kind of noticed. He's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll note that. But he was a little wary about it. So Jacob has, or Joseph has this idea that God is going to do something big in his life. He is the next, he is the next iteration of Jacob. So he walks around with that. And one day when he's going uh, to fetch his brothers at his father's command, he comes up to them and they see him coming and they attack him. And they throw him into a well. Now, these wells were very narrow at the top to keep the water safe. But when they dried out, they were actually used as temporary prisons or hiding places. So if you were a marauding army and you wanted to take over a city and you successfully did so and you had some prisoners, but you weren't quite done conquesting, you would throw the prisoners into a well like this so that they couldn't get out and then you'd go conquer the next city. Then you'd find a well and do that as well. And then you'd collect them on your way back. Because it's really hard to deal with prisoners and conquer nations at the same time. So here Joseph is, sitting in this well, listening to his brothers up top, plotting. It doesn't take very long before they see a caravan going along the coast. And they haul Joseph up and sell him into slavery. Now for Joseph, he would not have known 
These people would not have known their language. They would have smelled funny. They probably came from up north on a spice run where they had gathered spices and were bringing them back to sell in Egypt. He wouldn't know their language. And as he trudges along south towards Egypt, you can imagine in his mind that he's thinking, maybe my brothers will change their mind. Just maybe. Maybe they'll come and save me, give back the money and save me. Maybe they'll realize the sins that they've committed. And after days of thinking that, maybe, maybe it turns to anger. How could my brothers do this to me? Do they not know that I am special, that God has given me a dream, that I am supposed to be what God has for the nations that are coming? And he would pass by as he went along the coast. He would pass by familiar mountain ranges and know that his father is just over there. He can do nothing about it. And then, after anger, hopelessness sets in. I am lost. No one's coming. I am abandoned. I will be a slave for my life. And then he's sold to some stranger. He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And the first thing that he does, he gets to go into the fields and he gets to work hard, manual labor. Something that he has never done before. And Slaves in the fields are not particularly treated well. If they don't perform, they're beaten severely. Their expectations are incredibly high. And he works. I mean, what what are you going to do? All you can do is be faithful. I I just got to put my hands to the grindstone and work. And he gains the favor of the taskmasters and slowly works up the ranks until Potiphar notices him. Then he becomes a household slave, which is culturally significant because you had rights. You could, you could interact with the community. You were treated well. And as you went through this process, you would have known, noticed and learned and understood the cultural differences between what you had with your family and here. And you would notice that... It, Egyptian women are different than the women where I came from. They were much more free. It was common to see Egyptian wives have adulterous relationships with people they didn't know. It was common for sexual promiscuity, for propositioning, for immorality. You would see this day after day And as you became more familiar with your master's work, you would recognize that as the chief commander in Pharaoh's army, he was responsible for executions. So that would have been under your purview as well. And you work faithfully until one day Potiphar's wife comes to you and entices you. And you resist with everything that you have. I cannot do that. I must be faithful to my master and to my God. And you resist day after day after day. And there's nothing that you can do to dissuade her from trying to tempt you into sinning. Until one day, 
she finds you alone in the house and catches you by surprise and grabs your coat. And the only thing that you can do is run. So you run. She does not like that. She accuses you of attempting to rape her, something that is so culturally looked down upon in this new land you're in to the point where most of the time it's a capital punishment. So your master throws you yet again after all of that hard work and faithfulness into the pit. And there you, what are you going to do? You be faithful. And you slowly win confidence of the keeper you move up in the ranks in the prison and then one god one day god sends a sign two men who have dreams and you remember i i had a dream once and god is the one who brings dreams so you faithfully interpret those dreams and you see them come true and hopeful, hopeful that you might get out of this circumstance because you have provided a service. And what happens? You spend two years in the dungeon. That first sounds like your life. Wall after wall wall God where are you have you abandoned me to my disease my circumstance my difficulty my doubt I believed once where are you now I think we can all affiliate with Joseph and his challenges. The thing is, is that from the story we learn four things. We learn that there's a, a human faithfulness aspect. We learn that there's a human purpose to faithfulness. And then we learn that there's a divine faithfulness and a divine purpose. Let's look at human faithfulness first. Joseph is unparalleled faithful. No matter what the circumstance, chained or in high command, in prison or in charge, interpreting dreams or resisting temptation, he is faithful. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in the sight of And he attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse 8, but he refused his master's wife. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he will put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. And again, in the prison, at every 
corner when Joseph had the opportunity to grumble and throw in the towel and say, I am finished. I have been abandoned. I mean nothing. What does it matter? Instead, he was faithful. We might think, well, yeah, well, that's why he made the Bible, right? I mean, you can't expect that from me. There's a reason that he made the scriptures, and we look to him as this example, and that's wonderful. But you know, Jesus has something to say about that in Matthew chapter 25. It'll be on the screen. Verse 14 and following, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and about um, what that will look like and what his return will look like. And this is what he says in uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 and following. For it will be like a man, it, the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. That's about five million dollars in our day. To another, two, and to another, one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went and at once traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had two talents made two more talents. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you have delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where we'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice the consequence for the one who just holds what he's been given. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that the Spirit of God gives us gifts and abilities to use for the edification of his body. He has granted you a station, finances, abilities, a way of thinking, time, effort, energy, talents. What are you doing with those talents? Are you faithful 
with what you've been given? Like Joseph was faithful? Or are you holding on to them? And not using them faithfully? Well, why? Why why use them faithfully? Why does it matter? Because there's there's a human purpose to faithfulness. Joseph understood this, that he was a representative for Yahweh, that God had created him in his image, and that him and his family were set apart to represent God to the nations. It was his primary goal to bring glory to God by properly representing him in all circumstances, even when the culture or his circumstances were telling him otherwise. To not be faithful would be to go against the very God whose promises he had trusted in. But in that moment, he could have said anything. No one's watching. I have been abandoned. God does not care. Culture is doing it. Everyone is doing it. Who will know? No one is around. But you see, in verse 9, at the end of it, Joseph says this to Potiphar's wife, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's a little surprising. Wouldn't it be Potiphar that he sinned against? Taking Potiphar's wife? Well, how about David? We all know the story of David. David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof, and David should have been off at war but wasn't, so he takes Bathsheba, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. Uriah comes back. He figures out that he's in trouble, so he sends Uriah out and kills Uriah through some convoluted circumstance so that his sins won't won't be found out. And then Nathan comes and confronts him. And this is what David says when he writes his psalm, when he reflects on what he's done. Psalm 51, verse 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against his people. There are many people that he sinned against. But what David recognized is that he represents God as an ambassador. And when he sins or is unfaithful, it is not simply about the relationship that he has damaged, but it's about the misrepresentation that he makes of God, his Father. We also are children of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, We 
need to represent God well. This is why throughout the whole Old Testament, God's wrath comes against Israel every time they abandon Him and they don't follow His tributes. Because as sons and daughters of the Most High, we are required to represent Him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God or your Father who is in heaven. This is in the midst of our difficult circumstances and our challenges. This is not on the mountaintop. This is in the valley. This is when we feel like Joseph in the dungeon, in the darkness, mire and muck and wait. We are a light to the world. And how we live in that mire and muck represents who we are as sons and daughters and who our Father is. This is why we must be faithful followers of Jesus. Are we that? Are we faithful followers of Jesus even though our circumstances are insurmountable and challenging and difficult and keep us up at night? But you see, it doesn't It doesn't end there. It doesn't end with us being abandoned to our mud and mire and murk. Because God is faithful. Did you notice through the passage as Irene read it, how many times it said, and the Lord was with Joseph. Three times it says the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, verse 21, verse 23. Two times it said that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in verse 3 and verse 23. And one time it said that the Lord blessed all that he did in verse 5. Six times in that short passage, Moses, the writer of this story, reminds us that even though Joseph has no clue, God is with him. And then two times he indirectly reminds us by bringing these dreams in here. See, God provided these dreams which would have reminded Joseph of his dream and his father's dream and Abraham's dream that God is faithful. The Lord permeated everything that Joseph did. God was faithful in providing for Joseph what he needed in the moment, but it actually goes much deeper than that. It's not simply an influential pal patting you on the back. It's not some guy saying, good job. In Genesis chapter 15, well before Joseph's story, God encounters Abraham in a dream. Do you know what he says in that dream? Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, A deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord, the Lord, said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nations that they were served. And after they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites in, uh, is not yet complete. See, God's faithfulness was not simply in the time and in the moment. It was planned for generations previous. God tells Abraham, you will go into slavery for 400 years. Joseph is the conduit by which that happens. God is not simply with Joseph in some nice way. He is walking before Joseph. He knew what was happening Prior, he knows what's happening now, and he is in control of what happens in the future. He has given Joseph a dream that one day his brothers will bow at his feet, and you and I both know that that occurs. You see, God is faithful to his promises. They, or a psalmist reflects on this in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 105. And he says, remember the wondrous works that he has done. That's God, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And then down in verse 12, he says, when they, Abraham and his family, were few in number, of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from the kingdoms to another people, he allowed, he, God, allowed no one to oppose them. God rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. When God summoned a famine on the land. When God summoned the famine on the land. And broke all supply of bread. God had sent a man ahead of them. Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters and his neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Brothers and sisters, you know... Do you know what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 to 20? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And I am with you till the end of the age. God's promise hasn't changed. Christ has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us, like Joseph went ahead of his family to prepare a place for them. It was through suffering and affliction. Brothers and sisters, we go through the muck and the mire, but not without a companion, not without God. He has promised to be with us. He has promised to guide us. He has gone before us and he will strengthen us through it. For what purpose? What could possibly be God's purpose? Well, in Joseph's story, it's not in our passages. But it sets up one of the most glorious displays of God's power against the land of Egypt and in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 says, God raised up Pharaoh so that God's name would be made great. 
throughout the Old Testament. God's intention is to make his name great among the nations. God's purpose is to use Joseph's life, Joseph's trials, to make God's name great in the nations, not Joseph's name. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, says God, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my name's sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be made great among the nations, as in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God's intention in the Old Testament was not simply to bless Israel, It was not simply to bless Jacob and his little cohort of people. It wasn't simply to bless Joseph. It was to make himself known through the nations. And what better thing could you do for the nations than make the creator of heaven and earth the one who provides salvation for everyone known? God's divine purpose through our suffering, through our muck, and mire through the challenges that we face is to make his name great. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that. The purpose of Christ's coming to earth and taking on our form and living a life faithful to God And dying the death that he died on the cross for us. And conquering death through the grave. And raising again. Is so that. At the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Friends, I, I, I know that life is hard and that sometimes we don't understand what it is that God is doing. But brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to be faithful followers of Jesus as a light to the nations so that he is glorified. Because I know that he 
who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you are sovereign over us, that you have prepared the path, that you have gone before us, that you have suffered, that you know our pain and our temptation, God, and I pray that you strengthen us to be faithful followers of Jesus, that we would be a light to the nations. In your name, amen. ask you to join with us in song again as we worship our Father. Um, We'll be singing the words, He gives and takes away. And I think that's especially true in Joseph's story. But I think we have experienced that in our own lives. So I encourage you to remember that He is blessed. And...